This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Welcome back, everyone. There's a couple of seats. Here. Well, there's quite a few seats right here down at the front if you're struggling to find a seat. Didn't realize this session's only 45 minutes, the next one, so we're going to blast straight through. Um, should we start with a word of prayer? Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to bring us back again. Lord, we just dedicate this time to you and pray that you'll speak through my wife now as she closes over the session and that um, you may fill this room with your Holy Spirit. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so after the laver, we go to the holy place. So it had several layers. As you break it down and look inside, I love this animation, it peels back. And this is the setup. So in the holy place, there, were, there was the candlestick. Do you see it there on the left? On the right-hand side, there was the table of showbread. And there was the altar of incense. And then just behind the altar of incense, there was the veil. And then behind that was the most holy place. Didn't realize I should have clicked this. There we go. So this is a closer up view of what it looked like inside. Now the first article that we're gonna go to is the candlestick. So it was made of pure hammered gold and had seven branches and there were seven lamps on top of each branch. And the oil of these lamps was to burn continually before the Lord from morning until evening. So what was the purpose of the candlestick? There was no windows in that section where the, most holy, the holy place and the most holy place was. And how many layers did you see got peeled off in that animation? It's quite a few, right? There was three. There were no windows and there was linen curtains and on top of that there were three layers and coverings. So basically, if you did not have this candlestick in that area, it'd be completely dark. Nothing would be able to happen. And so too with us, without light shining in our lives, everything that we do will not be done properly. And Paul tells us what this light is. It says, but even if our gospel is veiled, this is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. This light is the gospel. And simply put, it's the knowledge of Christ's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary on behalf of you and me. Paul explains to those that don't understand the truth of the gospel that they've, they're in a situation of blindness. And things that can blind us could be anything. Anything that we put in place of Christ in our life is something that is blinding us to the truths of the gospel. And without the light of the gospel, we're, an under, we're unable to understand just how wonderful the gift of Christ is and what he has done for us. And this is the light that we are to share with other people. That's what that light was there. If you hide a lamp under, under a bowl, it totally renders it useless, right? Like, what's the point in lighting a lamp and then you just cover it over? And in the same way, hoarding the truth and constantly learning, like if we come to GYC and we go to all of these seminars and we just absorb all of this information, we enjoy all the plenaries and we just go home stuffed to bursting for ourselves and don't share it, it's like putting a lamp underneath a blanket or something. We can only truly engage with the saving grace of the gospel by sharing it with others, by sharing our experiences and what Christ has done and his saving grace. It solidifies it to us and it edifies the person that we're sharing with. In many instances, especially how I used to feel, was like, you know what, I, I do the, the program managing. I used to run the programs back in my conference or doing hospitality or something behind the scenes. I was the behind the scenes girl. Other people are the speakers. Other people have a way with words that's so much better than me. I'll just facilitate their sharing. 
And I kept my light to myself. Firstly, because I didn't want people to see what I was really like. Secondly, I was just too afraid. I thought, what I have to share is, is pointless. But imagine if we switched off all the lights in here now and there wasn't any, anything that you could see and I just had a tiny stump of a candle. Wouldn't it be better if you were stumbling around in the darkness that if I came with my tiny stump of a candle, if I linked arms with you and we shared that tiny light and found our way out to the exit? It doesn't matter how small you feel your, your experience with Christ is. It doesn't matter how, how you feel you are with words or you don't have a way of sharing. The little that you know and have experienced with Christ could be the stump of light in somebody's completely dark world. And that little bit that you can share with them will be the means for them finding the way out to greater light and greater truth. Link arms with the people around you, no matter how small you feel your influence could be. That light that you have, your experience with Christ, no matter what level it is, can be very, very life-changing for other people around you. It's the enemy's desire to keep us from sharing the light. He wants us to keep looking at the bad that we've experienced, the pains that we've had, the shame that we feel. Shame finds its greatest voice and vision in, in darkness. Satan wants to keep us wrapped in that. He doesn't want us to engage in the light of the gospel. A, so that we don't realize just how much Christ can save us from and is willing to go to do that. And B, he doesn't want us to experience that light so that we share it with others because he likes us all to be in darkness. But the light of the gospel shouts victory and freedom. Victory and freedom, not just because of what Christ achieved back then on the cross, but just as importantly, it shouts victory into lives of anybody that takes hold of Christ now and commits to laying all of life's happenings out bare in the light of the truth. When we expose things to light, it can no longer have hold on us. The shame that I felt from past relationships have no hold on me now, and I can share them freely, not to glorify what I, I used to do, but to give glory for the fact that in spite of where I was, Christ has taken me out of that, has given me victory, has allowed me to be restored, to have a heart that just can accept being loved, loved in the right way and not according to my own standards of love. It's such a liberating way to be and to live if we allow the light of God's truth and his gospel to really shine forth in our life. This passage in Isaiah 43 is one of my favorites. It says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. When we come to Christ and claim the promises that he has for our forgiveness, we must believe that our sins are forgiven and blotted out. Our sins are erased and God will not remember them or hold them against us. Sharing your light and, and exposing others to the gospel that you've experienced will not bring shame into your life. Rather, it will shine light on what you have done and show that no matter what you have done, Christ can free you. And for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. This is the depth of love that Christ has for each and every one of us. Passionate, rest restorative love. He's not going to rest until we are in the types of relationships that he wants he is not satisfied with you wallowing in the pain that you've experienced, either at your own hand or at the hand of other people. Because let's face it, other people can hurt us as well. People that had no business coming into our life. People that weren't following according to Christ's standards and decided that they were going to take advantage. Those things happen. But Christ says he's not going to rest until that healing is has been brought to your life. Those we have chosen to be in our circle of friends or to come into this holy place of our lives should be those people that are encouraging us to seek truth as it is in Christ. And if you find that you're around people that are doing that, ask them what their story is. Ask them to share. You're helping them to remember just how good God is to them 
And by you experiencing that story, you're being edified as well. The next thing was the table of showbread. Sorry, I'm going through this really quickly. In the story of the girl in the room, what was the principal activity that the girl was engaging with the guy in doing? What did she do when he looked like he was bored and he's about to leave? What did she do? Sat him at that table of bread and he just let him eat his fill. In the actual sanctuary, this bread was called the showbread and it was placed on a specifically designed table and was to be continually placed before the Lord. She set this table up in front of those guys. The only people that were allowed to eat this bread were the priests, and it had to be in front of the Lord for a whole week before they could even partake of it. And even then, they had to do it in the holy place. It was super, super special. What that girl was doing was completely, completely ridiculous. In many cultures, bread is a basic staple, and without it and other staples, the necessary nutrition for life would be lacking. And Jesus says in John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. Super simple sentence. He is the staple that we need daily to live a full life. And eating this bread represents our devotional time. Instead of spending time with Christ, that girl was giving her time up to these guys. She let them take their fill. And when they'd taken their fill, they upped and left. It's the time that we give to seeking God in order to gain a deeper revelation of his character. And suffering a lack of physical food, if we don't eat, we will eventually starve. And so too, having a lack of Jesus in our life causes our spiritual bodies to become enfeebled and die. And the problem is that death by starvation doesn't happen just like that. It is a long process oh, I'm too busy, I'm just going to, I'm too tired, I can't wake up for my devotion time today, Uh, I'm just going to spend five minutes, oh, well, and before you realize it's been a week, two weeks, a month, your Bible's got dust, you don't even know where your Bible is. Spiritual starvation is one of the worst things because you don't realize that you're starving and about to die until you are lost. And it may seem that the small compromises in life and in relationships aren't really that bad or that big a deal, Especially when things seem exciting and full of adventure, the problem is we cannot see the death of the soul until it is too late. In that time, that time of getting to know others should have been first spent getting to know Christ. From my experience, that time spent at my altar of showbread and learning who Christ is, what he represents, his character outplayed in so many different scenarios that I could apply to my life. It showed me what love really is. I said in the last session that I had a really good idea of how I thought I needed to be loved. I'm from a broken home. I have these insecurities. I prefer these things and this. And I had this formula of how I thought I needed to be loved, how I wanted my husband to be. This is the marriage I'm going to have, and it's going to be so healing for my childhood dramas. And I sought after men and relationships that I thought would give me those things. And it's only when I spent time at my table of showbread, my devotion time with Christ, I started to recognize in his words the things that really resonated with me. That passage of scripture, like I'm so passionately in love with Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. And everything that God spoke to me through that book, I think I spent a year just in that book, I started to realize the things that my heart came to life with, and I started to realize what I actually really needed to be loved. God showed me how my heart needed to be loved. So then when my guy number three came along, and I saw him, Clive is not my type. He really is not my type. And before I'd spent time with Christ, he would not have even made it onto my radar. But when he came into my life, and I recognized how he was and the things that he said and the things that he was really passionate about, I recognized that those were the things that sparked my heart in the word of God. I always thought that because I like to debate and I like to philosophize and theorize, I needed a guy who would do all of those things with me and we'd have these really deep heart-to-heart conversations every single night and it's just going to be this wonderful mind interaction. Clive is the most simple guy 
on the planet. Not an intelligent, he's super intelligent, but he is so simple. I will say 50 million words and he will sum it up in four. That's not my type, I wanted debate. But when I was going through the time in the word, I realized it was these simple sentences, I am the bread of life. Or what it said in Isaiah, for Zion's sake, I will not rest. Like those simple things I realized sparked my heart. When I recognized simplicity in somebody else, I recognized that that's the way that my heart needed to be loved. Spending time with God and his word, learning what makes you tick, what makes your heart work, and what resonates with you will allow you to recognize the same type of love in this person that God is trying to reveal to you is to be your future spouse. That's how we can recognize those things. That's how we can know if he is the one. But we'll only know that if we spent time learning how God loves us first. And what you'll find in the word of God is that God is a giver. He's not a taker. Those guys just took, took, took of her time and left and just left her with a mess. God is a giver. He's not a taker. In Hosea 14, verse 5, it says, I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. For those of us who have not been careful with our time in the past and recognize a state of spiritual starvation, we can take heart. This promise shows us that we can be renewed. He says, I will be as the dew unto Israel. Dew comes faithfully morning and evening to refresh the earth. And it's the same thing with us. If we spend time with Christ morning and evening, just as the dew, you'll find a spiritual renewal happening in your life that you would never found anywhere else. You may think that your life is super ugly right now. Nothing good comes from me. But God promises that you can grow as the lily and cast forth, your, cast forth your roots as Lebanon. And it may seem very difficult at first to begin this habit of spending real and consistent time with God daily. You may find that you're just going through the motions of devotion. I'm just spending five minutes here. I'm doing this. You know, I've ticked my devotion box for the day and off I go. But if we don't spend time really engaging with God and learning who he is and what his heart resonates with, we will stay trapped in the cycles that Satan already has us wrapped up in. We will stay making the same spiritual decisions. We will stay keeping the same friendship group and having the same distractions. And we'll still end up with the same subpar quality of relationship. Never ever making it to the true lasting idea that God has for marriage and relationships for us. So I think we need to take the chance and step out into the unknown. Be radical about letting go of the things that could be holding you back, holding your time back. We only ever have 24 hours in the day. And most of us are super busy already. And there's the story of um, a boy who was walking along the beach with his dad and his hand was full of shells. They'd been collecting shells, collecting shells. And they got to the point where the dad was like, oh, look, son, there's a starfish over there. And he's like, oh, wow, dad, that's amazing. And he's like, go get the starfish, son. So the son runs off to go get the starfish. And the dad sees him pause in front of the starfish and then come back. And the dad's like, what happened? Why didn't you get the starfish? He's like, I just couldn't get the starfish, dad. I couldn't get it. He's like, come on, son, go get the starfish. And the boy goes back, pauses, and ends up coming back. This happens a few times. And finally, the son comes back, and the dad's like, what's going on, son? He's like, Daddy, I couldn't get the starfish because my hands are too full of shells. Some of us have our hands full of shells. We've got hobbies, we've got interests, we've got desires that are keeping our hands completely occupied, and it's stopping us from being able to have the hand space to reach out and take hold of Christ, and he's what we need. We need to let go of the shells so we can get the bigger, better starfish of life. And it may just start with five minutes a day. If that's all you can commit to, be faithful in that. Commit to five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening, and see where it takes you. I can guarantee 
that you will start to crave God's word. I remember one point at university, I actually missed my morning lectures because I spent four hours studying the word rock. It may seem interesting to you, but I assure you, go study the word rock. And you'll start to crave God and what he reveals to you and how that makes you feel in life. But it's a complete cycle. The next thing was the altar of incense, and it was placed in front of the veil. And on this altar, the priest would burn sweet incense each morning and evening, so the smell would rise up continually throughout the day and night. And the position of the altar where it was placed meant the smell didn't only just permeate that holy place, but it would waft over into the most holy place as well. And so what does that mean for us? Revelation 8, 3 to 4 says... Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hands. So this incense that we're to offer up is our prayers. And because the incense was offered up both morning and evening, we can use that pattern for our lives too. And do you see how seamlessly it plays into our devotional life too? To be as the Jew, morning and evening. Our devotional life and our prayer life are completely wrapped up in each other. They run seam- seamlessly and harmoniously. It says Aaron sh- in Exodus 30, 7 and 8, it said, Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout our generations. Now, this is one of the things that I kind of struggled with. How on earth do I let my incense of prayer ascend before God continually throughout the day? Like, am I supposed to spend my life on my knees? Like, how does that even work? Firstly, what is prayer? I mean, it's essentially just a discussion of our thoughts, ideas, desires, and hopes with a friend. If I converse with my friend, I'm telling her about life. I'm just engaging in whatever's going on in my heart throughout the day. And especially, you know what it's like if you're you're interested in someone and you started talking. You'll say hi in the morning, hope you have a good day. Oh, you'll see something for lunch. Look what I had for lunch. Or something, something, something. It's very easy when you're in a relationship with somebody and you like them or you're interested in them to involve them in almost the mundane things of your day-to-day life, like what sandwich you had for lunch. Maybe they like that. Oh, I saw this, I saw your favorite food, haha, this happened. It's so easy, especially now we know what it's like with social media. We can jump in and out of each other's lives continually throughout the day. Why? Because we like to engage with the people we're talking to. And it should be the same thing with God. He wants the same level of interaction to jump in and out. Every decision that we make, he wants you to jump in and out of a conversation with him about it, even if it's just briefly. But very often, prayer can become this ritual, and if we view prayer like this, we miss out on the purpose, which is quite simply, prayer is there for relationship. The quality of our marriage has transformed completely when we actually learn to communicate properly. We'd got so disconnected that we didn't communicate about anything. I mean, we talk about day-to-day life. We've got kids. We've got, you know, we had to, to talk, but we didn't actually communicate and share what was going on in our hearts. And it was only as I started to have um, therapy for, like, my childhood issues that I started to come out that I'm having problems communicating with Clive. Everything was coming back to Clive. And I'm like, he was like, I thought you were having these sessions because of your childhood. I was like, well, yeah. (laughs) The issue is, very often, we cannot delve into our past if we don't feel safe in our present. I didn't feel safe in my present because I wasn't communicating with him. And so I certainly didn't see a future. So what's the point? I had no hope. But when I started to learn to pray and learn to pray properly, and I exercised the tools that I'd learned with talking with God, with reasoning with him, 
When I started to build the confidence to communicate again with my husband, we're going back on the same page. And now when anything comes into my mind, I don't stew on it, go away and think about it. I communicate straight away. And it isn't easy at first, even if it was, is with somebody that you love. It's got easier to speak my mind as I've A, just exercised the whole, I suppose, principle of just speaking my mind, but speaking my mind with Christ. God wants to know what you're thinking all the time. Share that with him. Share your heart with him, even if you disagree. He says, come, let us reason together. He doesn't say, let's come and agree together. He wants us to reason. He wants that dialogue because that dialogue builds trust and relationship. And if we don't know what to say, Romans 8, 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We have a helper in all things, the Holy Spirit. If we don't know what to say, if we don't have that trust relationship with God, just pray the simple prayer. Lord, send me your Spirit and help him to teach me what to say. And he will. The more time we spend in the word of God, the Holy Spirit reveals to us that we are indeed sons and daughters of God. We belong to him. He wants to have this father-daughter relationship or father-son relationship with you. And that's what prayer can be to us. Everything up to this point in the sanctuary involved the day-to-day bustle of activity. You had the stuff happening in the courtyard and the services that happened um, daily with the you know, lighting of the candles, making sure the bread was there, the incense was put on there. All of these things were to help us to become closer in communion with each other and with God. And the purpose now of, of the veil, it shows us that it separated, it was separation between the, the holy place and the most holy place. The purpose of the veil was to prevent anybody from accidentally and irreverently falling into the presence of God. So essentially, it was a separation between the day-to-day bustle of activity and a set-apart area where the priest and only the high priest went once a year. So we're moving from courtyard, which is our general acquaintance, to holy place, which is, you know, the people that ministered there, they were a family of priests. They had a duty. They knew what they were doing. We're getting closer to the people that we're going to be choosing our spouse from now. These are the people that are really helping us to share our light, the people that are encouraging us to pray, encouraging us in the word of God. And God puts this veil there as a distinction from what goes on in those two areas to this place that he's set apart, which is where our heart of hearts is. So why was it such an issue if somebody accidentally fell into the presence of God? What happened if they accidentally went in that area? They would die. It says that God, the Bible says in Habakkuk 1.13, that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil, and he cannot look on wickedness. Sin separates us from God. It's a separating thing. And it's this very reason that the enemy wants to keep us trapped in cycles of relationship, poor relationship choices, poor you know, life choices, poor friendship choices, so that we cannot approach God who is pure and holy. He gives us this idea that if you come to God as messed up as you are, you're going to get consumed. He's going to blast you. He's going to just send fire from heaven. Bam. But the problem is, is that God is not a punisher in that way. That's what the enemy wants us to feel. The very presence of the sanctuary contradicts that whole notion because the whole setup was to show that God wanted to be with his people. So why was the veil there? Sin was the reason that Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden and the gate was guarded or veiled by an angel with a flaming sword. Sin was the reason that Moses, when God was passing before him, was hidden or veiled in the cleft of the rock, so that when the presence of God passed by, he wasn't consumed. And sin was the reason why the 
the, the priest, the high priest, could only enter that most holy place once a year. That veil wasn't put there as a separation. It was there for protection. Because if Adam and Eve had gone and eaten from the tree of life, they would have immortalized sin and God wouldn't have been able to come and put his plan of salvation into action. God protected the saving of his people by putting that veil there. God didn't want Moses to be consumed either because there was sin in his life. He was human. So he veiled him so that he could reveal his glory to him and be close to him without Moses being completely consumed. And this protection helps us to understand the role further by exploring the work and role of the high priest. If you look more at what the high priest's role was and what qualified him to go through and pass that veil, it gives us a really good understanding of just how important that veil is. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12 says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. First and foremost, Christ is our high priest. He alone can do the work of restoration in our hearts. And the fact that the high priest is only allowed to enter through that veil once a year at an appointed time shows to us that there is a work to be done in our hearts that only one who has prepared themselves to undertake this responsibility as high priest can do. It's not for the day-to-day -day people in your life to be going in and out of your most holy place. One person who is appointed by God, specifically at an appointed time, should be allowed to go in there. And that's what happens. The issue with having no veil means that there's no boundaries. Premature intimacies happen and they burn hot. They burn hot, and he can give you that feeling of being consumed. I love him. It feels amazing being with him. I love her. This works out. We resonate. We're on fire. Our love is on fire. But the problem is, if you do not place good foundations to that fire, wood, big pieces of wood, you can kindle things from like little interactions. Kindling, you all know how to start a fire. You start with small pieces of wood. Thing, things that, you know, explode into flame really quickly. And that's what initial love can be. And if it doesn't have the boundaries of the veil, it explodes into a massive flame. You are consumed by your love and you think it's amazing we're burning hot. But what happens? You get burned, you get consumed. Without having that veil in your life, you accidentally fall into areas where you end up being consumed. And God has told us to have these boundaries, to place these, this, this emphasis on our purity, not because he's just trying to, you know, restrict and separate and all of those things that the enemy wants to feel like when you're building all these walls. No, those things are erected to be for our safety, our preservation, so that we are not consumed by our passions and desires. When you give up your purity, you end up being racked and weighed down by your guilt and shame. And the enemy wants us to continually desecrate the most holy place of others and ourselves, to be consumed by our passions so that we never truly get to experience the lasting satisfaction of a love born and developed and outplayed with Christ as its standard. Christ is that solid foundation, those pieces of wood that, yes, if they start burning, you need to put real wood to keep a fire going. That wood you gather in your time of singleness, I believe. You can do what I did, which wasn't the best way. I had to learn to gather a lot of the wood that keeps our marriage going whilst I was married. I said I wasted my singleness. The wood, the things that keep you going, are your devotional life, is your prayer life, is the standards that you have by the people that you allow into your life. Every single thing that you've, we've talked about in the courtyard and in the holy place, this is where you're gathering the wood that you're building the fire that's going to allow your love to burn, you know, good and hot, but to simmer and keep warmth going throughout your life 
for a long period of time. It's not these big, big, I don't know, experiences of life that allow your heart to explode that keep you going. Statistically, that whole passion of love, the way that you feel, that in love feeling, lasts for most people six months to a year into marriage. For some very lucky people, they can last maybe two years with that whole butterflies in their stomach. Oh my gosh, she's walked into the room. I'm so smitten. Is marriage supposed to last for six months to a year? Anybody want that kind of marriage? No? For sure not. Gather the wood in these foundational places, erect that veil and those boundaries so that you can allow a more lasting provision of love later on. You may be separating yourself for a time now, but there is an appointed time where the right person can go past that boundary and that veil into the most holy place. It says, and walk in love as Christ also has loved and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. That's Ephesians 5, verse 2, and verse 23. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul illustrates here the role of Christ as our savior, and it also parallels this role with the role of a husband to his wife. The role as Christ as our savior and high priest shows clearly just how sacred is the role and responsibility of a husband. Guys, don't try and be a husband if you're not ready to be like Christ. If you don't understand the sacrifice that Christ has made, you are not ready to be a husband and to sacrifice yourself for your wife. The intimate relationship between a husband and a wife as a result should be a sphere in which the gospel is to be played out and demonstrated. That's why the enemy is attacking relationships and marriages so much because when you have a good, godly marriage and it's joyful, it speaks volumes to the saving grace and love of Christ. It's the most amazing outplay of the gospel. The gospel is about relationship, reconciliation, understanding, sacrifice, service, devotion, and a passionate, determined love. Everything who God is. That's why the role of the veil is so important. By withholding the most intimate and sacred parts of ourselves and veiling them from the day-to-day -day habits and norms of life ensures that when the time is right, on the appointed day, the special sacredness of union can happen in all of its fullness without us being consumed. Someone who's not taken the time in the holy place of their life to learn what it means to be a priest absolutely is not qualified to perform that role of high priest. Ladies, sexual intimacy is intended to be with one person only. The high priest husband sent by God at the appointed day and time and with no other. Veil your heart. Gentlemen, Sexual intimacy is intended to be with one person only, the church, bride, wife. You are to give yourself for at the appointed day and time only, and no one else. If you don't set up that veil, you allow yourself to fall into and for other people to fall into your most holy place, and you leave no other option but to be consumed, and that's where we end up with the guilt and pain that we end up with. And God can help us to erect those veils now through all of the processes that happen in the holy place. Our prayer, our devotional life, and sharing what we're experiencing with others who are of like mind, who need to know these things. God longs to come in and close that door just like Christ did to that girl in the room. That was the first thing he did before he even started any of the cleanup. He closed that door veil yourself, get rid of the options for the distraction that keep coming in, and then allow that, that time for God to sort out the cleanup by the things that you do in the holy place of your life. So, we're getting to the heart of it now. The most holy place is the most sacred and deepest part of who we are. 
This is our heart of hearts. This business of committing to loving somebody is an extremely sacred duty. It's not just something that feels good, something that's nice. It is a sacred duty, not just for the husband to the wife, but the wife also to her husband. The covenant Christ made to redeem humanity was no joke. And we can see just what was involved in that covenant being upheld in the life of Christ. And similarly, marriage is no joke. Just wanting to be with somebody is not enough. Christ gave all for his bride. Every single thing. Guys, are you ready to make those sacrifices in that way? If you're still holding on to just, oh, this is just the way I like to do things. I like to go here. I like to do that. I'm just doing me. I'll do the God thing later. You're not ready. Girls, if you're with somebody that's kind of messing about like that, he's not ready. As my husband said in the last session, right before we were due to get married, like two months before, I called the wedding off. That broke me. Like he said, I like to write letters. I wrote it in tears. But I was like, I, I'd rather stop now and be hurt this much than to continue and to get into a relationship with somebody who will hurt me for eternity if, if I'm supposed to stay married to him. It may hurt to break off that relationship now. But the hurt that you'll experience if you continue and continue allowing yourself to be consumed, is it better just to get burnt once and be like, ouch? Or continually put your hand in the fire and expect a different feeling to happen. It's not going to change. We all know this passage, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. If a man does not know the word of God, he is unfit to fulfill the role of a priest, and he will not have the tools necessary to love you ladies as you desire. How can he wash you through the word if he doesn't know the word? If you're with a guy that is not interested in Christ or the Bible, do you honestly think he's going to be interested in upholding all the matters of your heart that you will need? For sure not. If you don't know God, gentlemen, you cannot love a wife as she was created and designed to be loved. If you want to know how you can love your wife properly, more deeply, and more, more fully, go to the person who created her. He will show you every single nuance. I've been in relationships where I was... The girlfriend. I fit the girlfriend piece. I wasn't loved as an individual. I am me. No one's heart is like me. You are you. No one's heart is like you. And God knows every single nuance of what you need to be loved and to feel fulfilled. Your spouse, your wife, your husband... He's only going to be able to love you fully if he has gone to the person who created your heart. And the most holy place in each and every one of our lives, it was designed to house the very presence of God. And as such, our relationships function best only when he is present. Now, quickly, we're going to finish up with these three things. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were three things. There was the pot of manna, that was in there to remind the children of Israel just how God has provided for them in the wilderness. And it's there too to remind us of the provision of God in our own lives. We have so much to be grateful for. If you don't remember just how good God is, start keeping a diary of the blessings that you have, the answers to prayer that you've experienced. And you realize that you indeed have a pot of manna. Store that in your heart. Remember who God is and what he's doing in your life. Aaron's rod that budded and blossomed was inside the ark as well, as proof that God alone has the ability to choose who he wishes to lead the services in his sanctuary. If you're wondering how I'm going to find the right person, trust me, if you've spent time at each and every one of these checkpoints in the sanctuary, God will make it so unbelievably clear to you 
who that high priest is to be in your life. And guys, he will show you just who you should be sacrificing yourself for as your church bride. We can read about the rebellion of Korah and what happens. You know, to, he, he just wanted the glory of what it meant to be in the sanctuary. There's so many people that will barge into your life and want all of the privileges of a high priest, all of the intimacies, all of the things, and they have no desire for the sacrifice and service. Don't allow Korahs into your life. And another application of the rod is that the blossoming of the rod demonstrates life, energy, and vitality. And these are the characteristics that will define somebody who has allowed Christ to be all of these things that the sanctuary tells us he is. He wants you to live a vibrant life, not to be burdened and broken down by the weight of guilt that poor decision-making happens. Love is to be displayed in a beautiful and vibrant way. We serve a God who is a creator. We've just moved to California about a year ago, and I think the sunsets there are the most beautiful. I mean, you may argue with me. But every single night, I'm in awe at how God paints the sky in the most amazing array of colors. God doesn't want love to be boring. He has a multitude of ways to paint the most beautiful pictures in our life through love if we allow him to be the center of it. God's intentions for our lives are directly contrasted with Satan's desires to keep us trapped in cycles of compromise and to keep us as lifeless sticks, like all of the other sticks that were placed before God. It was only Aaron's rod that budded. God will give you the signs of what he has put in that person that used to be in your life. Christ is represented by the vine that imparts the nourishment, the vitality, the life, the spirit, the power that the branch can bear fruit. And when, in affliction, and disappoint, and when affliction and disappointment come, you are to show altogether a different character of fruit than the world. There is the evidence that you are connected with Jesus Christ and that there is power that sustains you in all of your afflictions and disappointments and trials. And this power and this grace sweetens every affliction. The final thing inside the ark, of course, was the Ten Commandments. And the ark, or where our heart is, is to contain the law of God, and it's so vital for our survival. <coughs> the final passage is, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. The law of God is not there to clip our wings and restrict us to a boring life. Rather, just like the veil, the law is there for our protection, to ensure our freedom from the cycles of pain and destruction that we so often find ourselves in, freedom to love and to be loved in return, to serve and to live a fulfilled and joyful life. God really passionately desires you to be in a union that reflects him because he knows that when he is a part of your relationships, you will have the best time of your life. It won't burn hot, it won't burn quick, it will burn continually with a fire of true love. And it is completely different to any other experience that you could possibly have. Wait for God's appointing. Take time in your courtyards. God will show just how easy it is for you to recognize the right person when they come along, even if they're not your type. He won't let you miss out on them because he passionately wants you to be happy and in lasting relationships. But he needs us to spend time using this blueprint of the sanctuary. It's something I believe you can take home and use practically. Go through all of the articles, study into it. I knew nothing about any of the sanctuary stuff until after that dream when I went to read about it. And every single thing I read blew my mind. And there's so much more that you can go into it. I've literally had to skim through it. There's more detail here. But God is so passionate about us being in true relationship. So if you've become disillusioned with finding the right person, check back a bit. See if you've missed a few checkpoints. Sort out your courtyard so you're somebody that will be recognizable as, your, oh, I want to be with that person. I like that person. Don't act like Hophni and Phineas and wonder why nobody's coming to your sanctuary. The right person isn't coming along. Check back and spend time in these areas because God is faithful. 
our next session, we're going to have um, several married couples who I think are some of the most amazing people. They're real, and they're willing to share their hearts with you and answer all of the questions that I hope you're writing on this. It's, please come back after lunch. We're going to have a real discussion, a real talk, um, where you can ask all of the questions you could possibly think about marriage. I didn't have a clue about what marriage was. I thought I did, and then it happened, and I was like, oh my gosh, what happened? What did I do? What did I do? If you have no idea or want to know how to live a godly, fulfilling marriage, the tools necessary for it to last in a passionate and just exciting and dynamic way, please come back and uh, these couples are going to share their hearts with you after lunch. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time through walking through your sanctuary. I know it's been super quick and there's so much more that we can go into. I pray, Lord, that it won't just be my words that have been spoken here at GYC, you know, at the beginning of the year. But this is something that we can go home and actually study into for ourselves if we're truly desirous of the kind of relationships that you have purposed for us. Help us to spend time in all of the points that you've laid out in your, in your sanctuary so that we can actually align ourselves and be in a position to receive that time where you would allow us to be with somebody I pray if we're already married and we're struggling, that you'd help us to check back through these points too, to realize that this isn't a process for singleness, but it's something that we can go through continually to remain in good, lasting relationships with you. Help us to enjoy our lunch and to come back for a real discussion about marriage afterwards. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.